In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Inside the effort to overturn Georgia's election. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein. For months, we have been investigating the sustained and still ongoing campaign to undermine Joe Biden's 2020 victory in Georgia. You can find our reporting on AJC.com backslash 2020 election. Today, I'm joined by AJC reporter David Wickard and Washington correspondent Tia Mitchell. David, you led our team of reporters on this story. Tell us about how you investigated it and why it's important to publish. Sure. Uh, all of us at the AJC were, were, were covering the events of last year between the election and, and inauguration day. We were all crazy busy uh, and, and we covered a lot, uh, but... Uh, some things only became apparent in retrospect. You know, new information has come out that helped us put uh, put the events of last winter in context. Uh, one example is, uh, you know, you covered, Greg, the, the alternative slate of electors that uh, the Georgia GOP uh, nominated uh, last December 14th, uh, which at the time was like, what? well, that's weird. Why are they doing that? But in retrospect, it's apparent that that was part of a much a, a larger strategy to try to turn overturn the election on January 6th that uh, President Trump and his supporters were, were advocating not just in Georgia, but in other states. And in terms of how we reported it, uh, you know, a lot of it was going back and revisiting those same events, watching the videos of, of hearings and press conferences, uh, but also looking at new material that's come to light from government investigations, from other media, other credible media uh, that have reported uh, on events that were relevant to Georgia. On, you know, memo, people like Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, you know, came out with a book that included additional details. So sort of assembling all that information. And then, of course, talking to some of the key players and, and discovering information that hadn't been previously reported. David, talk about some of the new discoveries, too, that came out with this project. Sure. I mean, uh, one of the things that was sort of interesting is just the degree to which a handful of Georgia state senators, the degree to which they were all in on Trump's effort. Uh, uh, for example, uh, State Senator William Ligon from Brunswick asked to create a special committee to sort of investigate or look into election issues. He then turned that committee over to Rudy Giuliani, you know, President Trump's personal attorney and, and his team of lawyers who spent hours making some fairly serious and kind of wild accusations of voting fraud. And Senator Ligon, you know, made a point of saying, you know, it's our responsibility to get to the bottom of this. Uh, in retrospect, they did no such thing. They 
they simply aired the allegations and then produced a report that just repeated the allegations without actually trying to get to the bottom of it, without hearing from uh, investigators who looked into those allegations, without getting any sort of rebuttal from election officials who were accused of breaking the law. And, and in essence, they just helped spread President Trump's false allegations. Yeah, Tia, you know, one of the, one of the comments um, from, a, from a professor about this project really struck me. And it was, you know, we covered some of these incrementally. We covered these developments as they were breaking news. But, you know, putting them all together in a package like this is so powerful because it shows the narrative of that. And, and I mentioned at the top of the show, the still ongoing effort to undermine Joe Biden's win. Yeah, and I think that's important because it's easy when you read the incremental updates, which are important because they're it's news, the day-to-day things that have happened regarding the election and the stop the steal effort. But as we've all said, showing how they all connect to each other is what this project really focused on doing. And so you might remember that, you know, Senator Ligon was doing things with the Trump administration, and you might remember Rudy Giuliani did that hearing. And you know that they falsely accused Fulton County election workers of having suitcases of ballots. And you know that, um, you know, U.S. Attorney B.J. Pack was forced out. But now you get to see how those different things actually connect to each other or that there's a clear line one to the other. And I think that's really why the project's so important. And the timeline as well that we all worked on was really important for that same reason, because again, we've reported so many things over the past. It's been over a year now, but now you can see when things fell in line related to other things. And really, I hope it's a reference point for, of course, the people who are our elected officials and decision makers. But I'm also hoping it's a reference point for regular people who are just trying to make sense of all this. Yeah, I agree. And there's so much online. David put together not just the timeline with the help of the political team, but also key findings, how he reported the story, uh, all sorts of other resources for readers to look back to. Because again, this is going to be a continuing story. And I hope this podcast adds to that because we're going to walk you through some of the key elements. David, it's important to remind our, our listeners that Trump was pushing election fraud lies even even before the vote, long before the election, and almost immediately claimed victory in Georgia, even though the ballots were still being counted. Let's listen. It's also clear that we have won Georgia. We're up by 2.5% or 117,000 votes with only 7% left. They're never going to catch us. They can't catch us. David, as, as you reported, it was not clear that he won Georgia because troves, enormous, enormous number of absentee ballots driven by the pandemic because so many people's voting habits changed during the pandemic were still yet uncounted, especially in Democratic heavy territories like Metro Atlanta. Yeah, I mean, this was uh, the way the events unfolded was not a surprise to election experts who were paying attention to voting trends, because, as you said, Greg, the pandemic really changed voting patterns. Uh, Previously, there wasn't that big of a uh, uh, of a difference between Democrats and Republicans in terms of did they vote absentee by mail or did they vote early in person or did they vote on Election Day? 
but the pandemic really changed that. Uh, during the pandemic, Democrats really embraced, not just in Georgia, but across the country, voting by, by mail as a safety precaution to avoid long lines, to avoid crowds, uh, whereas Republicans were more likely to, to vote on election day, in part because, as you said, President Trump spent months uh, not just uh, uh, suggesting that absentee ballots would result in fraud, but also downplaying the pandemic. Uh, and so it's perhaps not surprising that Republicans would be more likely to vote on election day. And then what happened was uh, those election day votes were counted sooner than many of the absentee ballots cast by Democrats. And so, you know, under Georgia law, they can't be counted until election day. And so as those absentee ballots were counted in the days that followed, then Vice President Biden, uh, his vote total kept increasing. Again, not a surprise, sort of expected, but it, Trump immediately turned into, into something sinister. They're trying to steal the election from us. And Tia, we in the media were trying to also prepare the public with that likelihood that it would be days. I remember we wrote stories saying it could be, Mark Nisi wrote a story saying it could be, you know, days before we know the election victor because because of the absentee ballot crush. You know, we had we saw a little bit of that in, in 2018 in the governor's race um, with a number of provisional ballots and absentee ballots taking days to count, but certainly not nearly the number that we saw in, in 2020. But you're also trying to counter a narrative being pushed by the then president. The totals were magically, you know, rising when in fact it was just county officials in Republican county officials in Republican-leaning counties, Democratic-leaning counties, going through all those absentee ballots. Right, and again, when you look at everything in its totality, you see that. This was the seeds were planted early, as you said, and they served a purpose. And the purpose was that if Donald Trump didn't win fair and square, they now had avenues to try to poke holes in the results. And it created avenues for them to question the results and try to encourage Republicans to challenge the results. So, again, it's about seeing who does this benefit? Well, the attempt was to benefit former President Trump, but who he also needed Republican elected officials to buy into the ways he questioned the integrity of the election system. And now you see what happened. You see the split in the GLP. You know, you got people like Secretary Raffensperger and Lieutenant Governor Duncan and somewhat Governor Kemp saying, no, our systems work. This is not right. But then you have many other Republican elected officials, and now it's trickled trickled down to the rank and file Republicans, mainly because it wasn't just former President Trump. It was conservative media, and it was cable news networks like Fox News and Newsmax and OAN that, again, helped to perpetuate and feed into this misinformation about the election system. I remember talking to voters who were just so frustrated because they didn't know how to vote. <laughs> These were Republican voters who wanted to vote for Trump or Kelly Leffler or David Perdue, and they just didn't know how to vote uh, because they didn't trust the system so much. They didn't trust the, the electronic voting machines. They didn't trust mail-in ballots because of all this misinformation. I remember two nights after the election, Republicans rallied. They held this rally where the claims of fraud were amplified. Um, former Congressman Doug Collins 
was right in the thick of it. Let's listen. The time in which you take groups and the times in which you just take only the votes you want is over. You're not going to be able to hide behind the curtains of failed secrecy and count in areas in, in Georgia where it always seems to be the counties that are run by Democrats that always seem to have the problem. Tia, this was so jarring to me. I covered this rally. I was there um, and wasn't prepared um, to see so many establishment, so many powerful, influential figures in the Republican Party. I thought it would be this group of fringe Republicans, but it wasn't. Folks like Doug Collins, who had just recently lost, a couple days ago, lost the, the uh, essentially a Republican runoff uh, to, to Kelly Leffler, came in third place in that wide open Senate race. Um, he was right in the middle of it, as you heard, but also party chair David Schaefer, a number of rank and file elected officials uh, were joining Donald Trump Jr. and in, in, in Kimberly Guilfoyle. Um, so this was not some sort of outlandish group that was in the shadows. This was front and center in a parking lot outside the Georgia GOP headquarters. That really struck me. Yeah. And it we've said it so many times on this podcast, but I guess it bears saying again that it shows, number one, the hold that then president, now former president Trump has on the Republican Party. It demonstrates that so many people who want to stay in power or increase their power in the GOP believe they have to remain not only loyal to President Trump, but perpetuate his narratives, even when they're demonstrably false or in the most charitable, you can say they had no proof that the people aligned with Donald Trump, that what they were saying was true and they continue to spread those those um, talking points anyway. And so it just shows that for better or for worse, this is Trump's Republican Party and there are people willing to do whatever it takes to remain in Trump's good graces. You know, Doug Collins used to like, and I think if you ask him, he would really pride himself on being like a thoughtful lawmaker and someone who could build bridges. And at one point, he was very proud of being bipartisan when it came to criminal justice reform and being able to connect with different types of people. But when it came down to what he championed most when it when he wanted to become a senator, I'm not saying he threw those things away, but those things took a backseat to um, projecting loyalty to Donald Trump. Yeah, I think I was personally most surprised to see Doug Collins up there. And I, I don't know whether or not that's because I had a different view. Of it. I just did not expect to see Doug Collins playing that that sort of role. Um, and now I think it's, you know, now I think it's it's become part and partial to the, to the pro-Trump narrative. But back then, you know, just two days after the election, to see a veteran Congress member who who was an attorney and who had always, as Tia said, of course, he was always arch conservative, but he was also someone who was known to cross party lines and work on and have friends uh, among Democrats and work on consensus based issues uh, when he could find consensus. And to see him sort of in the middle of that was, 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 was jarring to me. David, you mentioned um, earlier on, I want to get, get more to this. Just a, f- a few weeks later, Democrats were in the Georgia Capitol to formally seal the Electoral College vote. Stacey Abrams, Nikema Williams, a bunch of party leaders were up um, on the uh, third floor of the Capitol um, in the Senate chambers uh, to commemorate this this moment, while down on the second floor in a sort of surreptitious moment that we did not have any heads up on, um, 
in behind the giant wooden doors of room 216, I will never forget, um, David Schaefer and a number of Republican officials uh, were cloistered to hold their own, I don't even want to call it a shadow slate because it wasn't a shadow slate really. It, uh, they called it a shadow slate, but really their, their own sort of illegal <laughs> effort to, to nominate, to tap their own slate of electors, as Schaefer said, just in case, even though we know that there was no election fraud whatsoever and there was no just in case. Yeah, I mean, and that's again one of those things that became clearer in retrospect. You know, one of the things that's come out uh, is more detail on the legal rationale for that. You know, this uh, law professor, John Eastman, who testified in Georgia uh, at one of those hearings, uh, wrote memos laying out a legal rationale through which Vice President Pence could reject the official you know, electoral college delegates from, from certain states uh, and instead appoint these alternative delegates. Now, the, the legal rationale was, well, the election was fraudulent. And so it wasn't done according to the laws that state legislators have passed. And so these alternative delegates are, are the real delegates. That argument has gained bipartisan condemnation, and it's premised on the idea that these delegates from David Schaefer and the Georgia Republican Party were in any way legitimate. They weren't. They had no. They weren't been approved by anybody except David Schaefer and the and the Georgia, Georgia GOP. This is politically Georgia. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. A celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. Welcome back to our look at this Atlanta Journal-Constitution exclusive, Inside the Campaign to Undermine Georgia's 2020 Election. I'm Greg Bluestein with reporters David Wickard and Tia Mitchell. Again, you can find this investigation online at AJC.com backslash 2020 election. And a reminder to subscribe to The Morning Jolt, where each day and every night, Tia, Patricia Murphy, and I work to provide you the biggest stories that drive the agenda in Georgia politics. Tia, we were both on it, I think, around 1130 last night. So it's always good to see you in the, the Google Docs file we share. Yes, it's a team effort for sure. Okay, so we all know about Donald Trump's famed call to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, threatening him with criminal prosecution, essentially, if he didn't put Georgia in the Republican column. Let, let's listen to a snippet as a refresher. It's more illegal for you than it is for them. Because you know what they did, and you're not reporting it. That's a, you know, that's a criminal. That's a criminal offense, and and you know you can't let that happen. That's that's a big risk to you and to Ryan, your lawyers. That's a big risk. But they are shredding ballots, in my opinion, based on what I've heard, and they are removing machinery, uh, and they're moving it as fast as they can. 
both of which are criminal fines, and you can't let it happen, and you are letting it happen. You know, I mean, I'm notifying you that you're letting it happen. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state, and flipping the state is a great testament to our country. David, that might be the biggest story of 2021. It's the focus of a potential criminal investigation, criminal potential criminal charges, I should say, from Fulton County. Um, it, it was the most read story um, in the nation uh, after that phone call broke. Every national outlet, and of course, every outlet in Georgia, including the AJC, was all over that story and the ramifications. And all of what Donald Trump said about shredding ballots um, was, was false. There's no evidence whatsoever of any of that, by the way. And Brad Raffensperger pushed back on that and refused those demands. But as your project uncovered, this was just part of a greater push that extended beyond Raffensperger. I know Raffensperger got the headlines, but also it extended to then attorney, U.S. Attorney B.J. Pack, who resigned shortly before the January 5th runoff, and also to individual lawmakers. Yeah, a lot of a lot of stuff was happening on that day, on January 2nd, when uh, President Trump called Secretary Raffensperger. That's the day that uh, John Eastman, the, the law professor, started circulating his memo, laying out this legal rationale. He was circulating, circulating it among U.S. senators. That's the day that 16 Georgia legislators signed a letter to Vice President Pence asking him to delay certification so they could quote, investigate allegations of voting fraud that had already been investigated. Uh, that's also the day at the U.S. Justice Department when uh, uh, a top administrator who was uh, sort of an ally of, of President Trump uh, told the acting attorney general that uh, President Trump was going to appoint him to replace him, uh, but maybe he wouldn't accept it if the acting attorney general would send a letter to Brian Kemp and David Ralston and, and others in Georgia, urging them to convene a special session and select an alternative slate of electors. I mean, Georgia featured very prominently in President Trump's effort to try to get the Justice Department to help him overturn the election. And when we say this is still ongoing, we're, no, we're not joking because the question of whether or not Brian Kemp was right in not calling a special session and opposing a legislative special session is front and center in 2022. We already have heard from Senator David, former Senator David Perdue, his Republican rival, saying if he were in office, he would have called for this special session. And, and David, this is something that's come out in some of the books and some of the reporting um, in the year after. But it wasn't just the fact that Brian Kemp and, and Speaker Ralston and Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan thought it would be a distraction. You know, as Jeff Duncan wrote in his book, he thought it would be deadly. He thought there would be protests and counter-protests and that, and that violence could ensue. Um, and, you know, having been a reporter a long time and, and seeing um, all the, uh, the tension at the time, I, I have to, to agree. I, I, I would, you know, I would think that the Capitol would have turned into an armed camp um, had a special session been called and every media outlet on the in the nation would have had cameras in the faces of every state lawmaker going in and saying, hey, what, what what's the purpose of this? Well, in, in some days uh, it was an armed camp. Uh, you know, there were yeah. protests. There were armed protests outside the Capitol. Uh, on January 6th itself, there were armed protesters outside the Georgia State Capitol. And uh, uh, one of them who, who 
who was not armed, because you can't be armed and go into the Georgia Capitol, uh, went inside looking for Brad Raffensperger. Uh, and, you know, that prompted the, the Georgia State Patrol to escort him out and send him home. Uh, and that was on January 6th. Uh, there were armed protests at the Georgia Capitol. There were several of them. I've never seen Governor Kemp so upset as he was that day when he had a press conference um, um, uh, later that day, basically saying that the National Guard was going to um, was going to be in effect, continue to restore order to the Capitol, make sure that the Capitol didn't become uh, a place of violence that day. And, and, you know, and Tia, this is important because this project dropped right near the end of 2021, as just as the nation prepared to commemorate the first anniversary of the January 6th insurrection attempt. And, and of course, you were in the Capitol covering covering the Georgia angle to, to, to the January 6th electoral college vote. What should people remember about this day? Well, number one, I think people should remember what that day actually symbolized, which is the physical culmination of weeks of former President Trump's stop the steal efforts. So January 6th was preceded by a rally that Trump supporters um, and allies had organized at the White House. And that former then President Trump encouraged his supporters to head to the Capitol. And that we now know based on the prosecutions of hundreds of people who breached the Capitol, that most of them said they went inside to stop the joint session of Congress because they felt they were doing what then President Trump wanted them to do, which was keep Joe Biden from being confirmed as president and do everything they can to try to keep Trump in office. So to me, the biggest thing is we have to know the truth and tell the truth. And then we have to remember that that day was deadly. People died. Ashley Babbitt was killed because she was trying to enter a room where members of Congress were sheltering and because officers worried that if those rioters confronted members of Congress, those members of Congress could have been injured or worse. And the fact that we don't have any injuries to members of Congress shows where law enforcement had prioritized their resources. In the process, rioters died, and in the process, law enforcement died. Let me repeat that. Members of the law enforcement community died. And you can rationalize, well, oh, he had a heart attack or, oh, he had other conditions. But we all know that there can be contributing factors. And if you don't think fighting a mob might cause somebody to have a heart attack, then you're not being honest about the human body and what health looks like. And I'm sorry I'm going on a little bit of a rant, but I want people to hear this because, unfortunately, over the past year, there has been a lot of attempts to downplay what happened. There have been a lot of attempts to say, well, these were just um, people exercising their First Amendment right. Well, the First Amendment doesn't give anyone the right to inflict harm on others. It doesn't give anyone the right to create physical or property damage. So this was more than a First Amendment protest. 
You know, this was more than just tourists at the Capitol. This was violent. I was there. I saw it. I heard it. It was violent. I had the gas mask still to prove what happened that day. And Tia, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because as we prepare for January 6th here in Georgia, there are fresh efforts from some Republicans to lionize these insurrectionists, to pretend they were somehow heroes. The Cobb County GOP is even staging a candlelight vigil for the members of the violent mob. This is why it's so important to remind Georgians exactly what happened, which, as you said, is a violent, deadly attempt to block the peaceful transition of power. And absolutely, that's what it was. And you can't you can't ignore what the people said in their own words. You know, again, one of the ways people have tried to cast doubt is say, oh, it was Antifa, or these were people who just put on red hats and pretended like they were Trump supporters. Well, if you look on their social media, even before that day, most of these people had long histories describing themselves as conservatives and Trump supporters. These people, after speaking to their lawyers and speaking to judges, said, no, I was there because of Donald Trump. I was there because I thought that I should do whatever it takes, including violence, to stop President Biden, stop Joe Biden from becoming president. And remember, these people weren't just out for Democratic lawmakers. They were chanting, hang Mike Pence. You know, they trashed the Senate chamber in offices. So, you know, a year later, I think it's easy to put blinders on if you would like to. But again, who does that serve? Does that serve democracy? Does that serve the institution of our government? That seems to serve one individual, and that's Donald Trump. And David, this is why the AJC project is so important, because it cuts right into the misinformation that has propelled this January 6th myth, that has propelled this these lies, these conspiracy theories about election fraud. It goes right to it and shows that how this is part of a coordinated narrative. Yeah, I mean... Uh... Look, last year was was a blur for us. If it was a blur for us, how's the average person supposed to make sense of that? That's that's why we wanted to go back and re-examine those events in light of new information and tell the story the way we told it as a narrative, because that's the way we can show how things unfolded. And it wasn't an accident. Well, guys, we'll wrap it up here. Earlier this week on Politically Georgia, we took you inside day one for Atlanta's new mayor with our city hall team of Will Nobles and J.D. Capilouto. Also, make sure to catch our Falcon season finale preview on the Bowtie Chronicles with reporter D. Orlando Ledbetter. Thank you again to Tia, David, and our producer, Jay Black. And please read the investigation at AJC.com backslash 2020 election. Please rate, review, subscribe. We love hearing your feedback about the Politically Georgia podcast. And thanks again for listening. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. 
Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.